Welcome to China Tech Talk, a weekly discussion of technology and startups here in China. I am John Artman, and I'm Matthew Brennan. This week, we're very excited to have on the show、uh, Steve Hoffman. He is the captain and founder of Founders Space, one of the top startup accelerators in the world, with over 50 partners in 22. Countries. Steve has trained hundreds of startup founders and corporate executives in innovation, and more recently has、uh, had a whirlwind tour of China,、uh, promoting his most recent book, "Make Elephants Fly." Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, I guess、uh, one of the first questions that I want to ask Steve is: is why, why Captain? Where, where did that come from? It's my gamer handle. So I chose my gamer handle as my name, and also it means captain of the team. We're a team at Founder Space. So, Steve, tell us a little bit more about you know who you are and 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 what you've been doing. So, what I've been doing lately is business in China. I have been expanding my company, Founder Space, all across China. So, by and far, China is the the largest market we're in. So, we started in Silicon Valley. We're very well known here. Now we're expanding. The many cities in China. We originally launched last year in Shanghai. We'll be opening up Founder Space this year in Beijing, Chengdu, Wuhan, for sure. We already signed deals, and probably in Shenzhen, Hangzhou, and other cities. Very exciting. I am also the author of the book "Making Elephants Fly: The Process of Radical Innovation," which is being published by Zhongxin, and I've been on a book tour. I was actually on. A crazy 75-day book tour in China. So 75 days was a lot. I was all over China, you know, all the major cities,、uh, talking to people. It was a fantastic experience. I got to meet so many new people, and the book is doing really well. It's a bestseller now. So I'm very happy to be in China. Yeah, I heard. I heard someone refer to it as、uh, as your your、uh, rock star tour. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> It felt a little like that. China is fun. It's fun for us business people because in China, you know, everybody wants aspires to be in the business. Everybody looks up to the the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the you know, the people writing about business. It's where we would just be considered kind of boring business people. China, we're more like rock stars if we do well. <laughs> Cultural icons.、It's Different than than other parts of the world.、Um, so I guess the、uh, the first question for a lot, you know, we're China focused podcast, right? China Tech Talk.、Um, why China? Why are you spending so much time in China, Steve? Well, like many of you、uh, who are from America or Europe, it sucked me in. <laughs> it wasn't a planned strategy. So we had been operating. Out of Silicon Valley, working with countries all over the world, all across Europe and all across Asia. We have partners in 22 countries now, but China seems to be consuming most of my time because there are so many opportunities and so much is happening in China. It's just so exciting to be there that I continually go back. Right. At what point did you? Was there a point, like an aha moment, where you just said, "We're going to do China," because it seems to be something you. You know, you need to put a significant amount of resources and time in to make China work. It's a little bit more、uh, difficult than other places, shall we say? So, was was there a point where you just said, "Let's do this"? Yes, it hit me. So, about two years ago, I took my first visit to China. I'd never been to China before. 
Uh, I knew a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs and venture capitalists here in Silicon Valley. At that point, it was just at the point where things were starting to take off in a big way with the government and everybody else. And I saw the opportunity, but we didn't jump on it. It took another year before things really started going. So I took a few trips and then about a year ago, that's when we hit what we call the inflection point where things just started to take off and I started to spend a lot of time in China. Um, innovation, like here in China, how would you describe innovation? Um, how is Chinese innovation different from, from, you know, you're in the valley right now? So China has some very strong innovation going on, but there are also areas where it can use a lot of improvement. So of course we see a lot of copycats in China because copying is a great business model. And if you can copy an idea and bring it into China and be the first to execute in the right way. So that's, you know, a tried and true method in terms of innovation. I see a lot of innovation happening. Some of the young startups are really pushing the envelope on what they can do. Uh, still too many startups in China look at what everybody else is doing and try to do the same thing, but a little different. And that's not really innovating. They aren't really uh, creating something new. One company in the big company side that has been just amazing at innovation and I think is leading the way is Tencent with WeChat because the WeChat ecosystem uh, is hugely innovative. It's ahead of the rest of the world. It's way ahead of Facebook. It's uh, way ahead of Snapchat. There's just so much more you can do with WeChat than any of those other platforms. And I see them trying things that have never been tried before. And I see Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all of these other ones looking to WeChat and copying what they're doing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of interesting um, reversal of, of what we've seen um, over the past past couple of years, in particular with powerhouses like uh, Alibaba and, and Tencent. Um, but I want to go back for a second to something that, that you just said um, about, you know, all of these companies where they're, they're, they're doing something that's only like they're creating products that are slightly different. Um, and, and perhaps in, in, in some senses, that's not really um, innovation. But I'm curious, I mean, isn't, isn't that kind of what also happens in, in the Valley as well, where you have, you know, all of these startups, like they're doing something kind of similar, but then their USP is just something just slightly different from everyone else? So everywhere in the world, people copy because that's how we learn, uh, that's how we try new things. We look at what works, we say, oh, I could make this better, I could do better. Um, so we take that idea and we run with it and we add to it. Now, the big difference between a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in China and Silicon Valley, so in Silicon Valley, there's still a lot of people who just copy and they make it incrementally better or a little different and then they almost always fail. Because if anything is just a little different, you've already failed. <laughs> It's just, it's nobody's going to switch to something that's a little better or a little different. It has to be radically better or very different, a whole nother value to the user for to get people to try a new app or a new product or service. The entrepreneurs I see who really innovate, they go a different direction than everybody else. Now in China, because of the history of China, uh, because of how people think and because of how people are educated, most people feel most comfortable doing what everybody else is doing. They see a path to making money and they go down that path, the one that everybody else is going down. It's very hard to innovate when you're doing that. 
the chance of you innovating is much lower. The people who really make the big breakthroughs, the real innovations that, that we all talk about that really count, they usually go off in a different direction because they're really interested in something. They're really passionate about it. And they want to figure out deeply how this works and understand it. And through that understanding and many experimentations, they come across an idea or a mechanism that they can change that really radically alters process or creates a new value for customers that they aren't getting somewhere else. I always encourage any entrepreneurs anywhere to not go down the same path you see other people going. If you already see, if you can, this is the rule for entrepreneurs. If you can see uh, the money, if, you can, if you're pretty sure you'll make money doing it, then don't do it <laughs> because everybody is, can see the same thing and everybody is going after that. And it probably means you're just going to end up with everybody else fighting over uh, nothing. You are unsure. The idea is so new and so crazy or so different that you're unsure what you're doing and you're just kind of fumbling around in the dark. That is a good sign that you eventually will figure out something that other people haven't. And that would be an innovation. That may, that could that, that's very different from how Chinese view it. In my I know. Experience. Yes. My <laughs> yeah. yeah. They don't they don't want to fumble around in the dark doing something they don't no. know will turn out well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about to make the same the same exact ob uh, the same the same uh, observation where you know which what you have is in China there people are doing that 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 first um, kind of model that that you were talking about where where the 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 business model is is very very obvious it's very clear that you can make a lot of money and then everyone just kind of um, rushes rushes into it um, you know Matt and I we've talked a lot about uh, bike sharing on the on um, the show so far. Um, and I would say that that's definitely an area where you're seeing just, you know, just stupid amounts of money going, like going into this, this, this huge black hole. I agree. So I am not a huge fan of Mobike um, or Ofo or any of those. I think they're all eating each other up right now with, with dumping bikes on the street. And it's, you know, and there's so much competition and there's such a low barrier to entry to get into that market. Literally, all you need is a lot of capital and you buy some bikes and dump them on the street and then you're equally competitive to everybody else. So that's really tough. Sure, but isn't the market so, so big in China that if, even if you have a tiny percent of that market, it's still very interesting? I take a different point of view. So I like to see when I'm looking at companies, companies that can dominate the market keep everybody else out those that's the magic formula for making a lot of money so there are two types of markets one easily becomes commoditized meaning everybody is offering essentially the same product or service and all you can compete on is price and when all you can compete on is price it gets brutal the profit margins go away it's very hard at a certain point to build a big business so either there has to be massive consolidation in that market um, meaning a lot of the competitors will go out of business or one competitor just buys them out or they merge um, before money will be made. The best markets by and far are the markets where you can get in early. And because you get in early, you can capture customers and create value that nobody else can. And by the time competitors want to enter that market, it's too late. They cannot compete with you. 
I can give you several examples of companies that do this very well. Number one is WeChat. We all know, like, you're not going to switch away from WeChat because once they grabbed all your friends, it's very hard to move all your friends to a new service. So they have a huge barrier to entry. Other great uh, types of businesses, uh, especially for venture capital, are marketplaces. So any marketplace where you can match buyers and sellers is, a, is really powerful. Alibaba knows this. JD.com knows this. Airbnb knows this. Even Uber and Didi are marketplaces. They're matching drivers and passengers. The problem with companies like Mobike is that they are one-sided marketplaces. They aren't two-sided marketplaces. And as a one-sided marketplace, you, you basically, it's not, uh, you're not matching people. You're not creating a network effect where the more customers, the more buyers and sellers you get in there, the more defensible you are. Because simply, you're offering a product to the customer, and any competitor can come in, like Ofo, and offer essentially the same product to the customer um, and the same value. And at that point, all you can compete on is price. And then it's a bloody war once you start competing on price. But in terms of innovation, I'm just curious. I mean, so besides WeChat, are there any other um, companies or, um, or or spaces where you see there's 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 room to um, create something disruptive or, or or radically different? There are lots there there are lots of opportunities in China to innovate. I mean, China has a huge consumption market, 1.3 billion people. Um, many of them now accelerating into the middle class, so they have money to spend. It's an enormous opportunity for Chinese startups to innovate in e-commerce, to innovate in social networks, to innovate in all, everything to do with consumption. I think China can easily be a leader there. So the question um, is, what do I see? So I see some young startups actually pushing the envelope. Uh, trying new things that other startups aren't and innovating in that area. And I think we'll see a lot more of that, especially as new technologies continue to be introduced. So new technologies in terms of AI. So literally every service out there, every consumer-based service, every business-to-business service, enterprise is going to change as AI becomes more sophisticated. In China, China has a lot of great AI engineers that can actually create value and rethink how these services operate and what they can do when they're really smart, not just the current generation. Besides WeChat, what other companies specifically are, are you are, do you see that are that are innovating quite well? I'm working with uh, a number of companies that I really like what they're doing. So one of them is called HiBook. H-I-I-B-O-O-K. And what they have done is they have looked at email. So all of us who deal with overseas, not just in China, have to use email to communicate. It's the universal communication platform. You know, WeChat is great in China, but honestly, if you're not dealing with Chinese, you're not going to use it for everything. Hmm. But uh, people, in, especially in China, but also around the world, find email clunky. Once they start using an inter, uh, instant messenger, email seems uh, it, it's too formal. There's too, it takes too long to communicate. So you want to go back to your instant messenger, but you're stuck on email. 
So what they've done, what HiBook has done, is working on transforming email, the interface for email, and the flow for email into that of an instant messenger. So it's instant messaging, but across email. And that's their app, and it's very compelling. Another startup I'm working with is called SpaceMax, and they are really pushing the envelope of what you can do in VR. So in normal VR, it's not really location-based. You put on the VR, and you're just in this other world connecting with other people or, uh, or software. But what they do is they allow people within the same space, within the, like you could imagine a shopping mall or a theme park, you could be in the same space. And when you put on the VR unit, everybody else who has a VR unit is the same distance away from you. They are in real life, but in the virtual world. So as you interact with them, you're interacting with them in a virtual world, but within the same proximity and geography as if you were in, as you are in the real world. So you can imagine different applications for this, training applications, gaming applications, different, I mean, there's many, many different poss possibilities you can take their core technology for and apply it to. And they are the first ones I've seen doing that. Okay, so you just mentioned uh, VR. Um, what, what technologies are you seeing on the ground here, um, Steve? That's um, China is compared to compared to the Valley that China you you feel potentially that they they might have an advantage in. So, in most cases, uh, China does not have a technological advantage. In most cases, most of the really advanced technology is being developed outside of China. And then Chinese are use, importing that technology and using it to create new, new products and services for the Chinese market. There are areas where China uh, can get ahead and take a leadership position. So one of them is clean energy, especially since in the United States, you know, Trump is a non-believer in climate change and has dramatically cut back what the U.S. is willing to do in terms of clean energy development. And, su and supporting environmental uh, uh, regulations, everything across the board, R&D. So I think in China, there is an opportunity because the government is funding it for China to take a lead in that type of technology, which will be really interesting and be a huge market worldwide. So I'm very positive in that direction. I also see China able to take a lead in uh, innovating, like I said, across commerce. There's a lot of opportunities because of China's huge market to become a leader in commerce, especially when it gets into mobile social commerce. China is already leading the way. Mm -hmm. The other areas, uh, big data. Uh, there's a lot of data out there uh, that uh, in China that can be used in, in very novel ways, as that combined with artificial intelligence. See a huge area. The next area is medical. So there's a lot of money going into medical right now. And in particular, the CRISPR technology that allows for a gene editing, China has taken the lead. They were the first ones out of uh, Sichuan University in Chengdu. They were the first ones to apply this new gene editing technology to try to help somebody 
who had cancer. So that was the first human trial ever done in the world. And they are pushing the limits on that. And I think we're going to see a lot of other areas, especially in genetics and biotech, that over the coming five to 10 years, China is going to be pushing very hard the envelope in that direction. In my mind, there's no reason that China can't be an innovation and technological leader. It's just historically, China has been playing catch up. They're catching up to the rest of the world. They had enough to do to pull people out of poverty and get all the basic businesses and industries up and running over the past 30 years. And now they're kind of moving up the ladder, the value ladder, so that we will see in China definitely over five to 10 years, uh, China taking a lead in many sectors in innovation, just because the size of the market and the amount of money that the government is willing to put into it. And that is one of the reasons myself and Founderspace are so bullish on China. That's why we feel it's so important for us to be in China. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point as well. Um, and kind of um, it, it plays off of something that, that, that you mentioned um, before about consumption in China. Um, and so, you know, consumption-led innovation, in a sense, doesn't, doesn't require technical innovation. Um, but, you know, but if, you know, if you look at uh, mobile payments, if you look at fintech, um, it's pretty clear that, that China, at least on the consumption side, um, and, and more and more on the technical side, is becoming um, much, much, much more powerful. But then, you know, you look at, um, you know, uh, innovations and, and progress, in, in, in particular, in artificial intelligence. And it really does seem that artificial intelligence, at least, is going to be kind of the area where, in terms of technical capability, the, um, the playing field is going to be leveled uh, in, a, in a certain sense. Because what AI requires is massive pools of data. And, you know, that, uh, these, these huge Chinese companies, they certainly do have a lot of that. Yes. I see China... Uh potentially becoming a leader in AI. I know a lot of the ventures in China are really bullish on the sector and putting a ton of money into it. I was speaking with Lee Kai-Fu, and he's you know, putting a lot of money into AI and big data startups on this premise that China can be the leader and they can build out uh, a platform. He's actually working on building out his own platform for big data. So I think we're going to see a huge push in this area. And out of that, will come some groundbreaking startups. But the, with the medtech stuff, uh, Steve, you're mentioning, it just brought into my mind how, you know, in China, because um, I also read about that, that in Chengdu, um, what they were doing there. Um, you know, perhaps, is, how, what do you feel about government regulation here? Because I think some people would look at that and say, oh, well, you know, China has unfair advantage there because this stuff isn't regulated like it is in the States. Yeah, exp- especially when we get to genetics and what we can do uh, with gene editing and experiments on humans, the Chinese government is much more open to allowing that to happen. In the West, in Western countries, we're trying to be very careful about that. You know, there's a lot of pushback. Are you going to uh, genetically alter human beings? Is that moral? Is it ethical? Is, you know, there are many religious groups who are completely opposed to it. There's many other people, academics and others in politics, who are opposed to it on all sorts of grounds, that it could get out of control, that it's unethical, all these different things. So uh, there are a lot more regulations that we have to contend with in the West when doing those type of experiments. In China, those things, those 
restrictions, both moral uh, and governmental, are, are lower. So, the, so it's much easier uh, for companies in China to push the boundaries. And that's why, I, that's why I mentioned that. That's why I think China, especially when it comes to uh, technologies that really use gene editing, CRISPR, in new ways, especially to alter human beings, you know, we can uh, potentially alter human beings curing cancer with those. We can make people smarter. We can make people stronger. We can make people potentially live longer. All of these things, where are those experiments going to happen? And if they happen first in China, then China will be, by default, the leader. Um, yeah, that's that, that's a, that's a really, really great point. And it actually um, kind of really dovetails into um, a book that I've been reading recently. Um, it's called uh, Homo Deus by uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari, um, the mm. uh, the author of, of Sapiens. Um, highly recommend it if you have not yet read it. Um, I'm about 75 percent of, of the way through. But it's actually really interesting because one of the things that he says is that um, you know, you look at a lot of these, um, what he, he calls them techno-religions, and so belief systems based upon um, technology. Um, and so it's not necessarily in the same sense of, of actual religions that we're used to, but in just in terms of uh, believing in something that isn't physically real is what he calls um, um, a religion. And so when look, looking at a lot of these uh, innovations and new technologies that, that, that are coming out, um, he is predicting that, you know, we're going to we're going to see this ascendancy of, of what he calls uh, techno religions and that much of the techno religions themselves are going to be created in Silicon Valley, um, inside of tech companies that are making a lot of these um, really serious technical innovations um, and really kind of changing the way that technology works and, and what we can do with the human body. But that the techno religions themselves will really kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, gain, like put, put roots down here in China, in part because there is this, um, what he calls an ideological vacuum, in part because of, um, you know, recent history, recent modern history, um, you know, there's, there, there really isn't, you know, this, this overarching belief system in China, um, very, very different from the States and, and, and many Western countries. And so kind of what you're saying about how there isn't, there isn't as much, um, you know, moral compunction in China against you know, genetic testing against genetic editing. And I think that, you know, what you just said about that, you know, like, like I said, just, just, just almost 100% agrees with what Harari said as well, that these techno-religions really are going to um, take root here, here in China. I find that fascinating. If we look now at, you know, Silicon Valley, for example, you know, these techno-religions like Synchronicity with Ray Kurzweil, and Synchronicity University, it's basically a re religion. It's his belief system that, you know, there will come a point where human beings can transfer their intelligence uh, into the net or into robots or into artificial brains that uh, where we can live on indefinitely by doing that and still call ourselves human, even though we won't be. There are a number of other uh, techno religions out there, you know, the whole transhumanist movement, yeah, exactly. you know, and all its different flavors and variations that are springing up. It's, it's very alluring, uh, very fascinating. Um, some of it does require a leap of faith because honestly, whether even if you're as smart as Ray Kurzweil or anybody else, you don't know, we don't know what it means. We don't know 
if you know artificial intelligence can become as smart as human beings, we don't know what consciousness is like uh, in a robot, and we will never know. We'll never uh, know. We can only speculate. So there's always going to be a leap of faith when we make when we draw a conclusion about that. We also can only speculate uh, what it would be like to transfer our consciousness to something else, to a machine. Now, if we died and transferred our consciousness to, to the machine, would it be us? Would we still be living on? Or would it simply be a facsimile of us, which loses some essential part of the, the, the self, the I? You know, I think, therefore I am. What is that I? We, none of us really know what that I is. We feel we know what the I is. But how can we know if that I is actually replicated um, in that machine that contains our, our, all our memories and, and, and intelligence and experiences? Even if it has all of that, does it have the I? Is it the same person? So those, because those are such big questions and because they are fundamentally unanswerable, even if the machine appeared exactly like us to everybody else, it would be it would be me to somebody else, my replicant. But would it be me to me, um, especially if I'm still alive? <laughs> it wouldn't be because I'd be a separate being with different experiences. And all of those things are, are fertile ground for what you would call a techno religions or whatever you want to brand it as. Uh, very fertile ground for us to to. Uh, for us to develop new belief systems around because they're going to dramatically impact humanity as we move forward. My initial point was about regulation, I believe. And, um, you know, the example of genetics is a, is a really good one. Um, we can also look at it, I think, from aspects of fintech. Um, a lot of people have made the point that, you know, WeChat and Alipay are only able to do what they've been doing simply because the market has been certainly early on, very hands off in terms of regulation. Um, bike sharing is another example. We've been talking about this a lot. So, um, you know, the government in the early days has been very hands off and uh, compare that to more developed markets globally. It gives I think it gives the local startups a massive advantage, right? It's very interesting in China because China, in one way, is one of the most regulated societies in the world. Right. The government is into everything and wants to control everything. But because the government of China now feels that it's so essential to create a startup ecosystem and to have its startups thrive, prosper, and eventually lead the world, that they are actually purposely backing away and becoming less regulatory in areas where they see startups pushing the limits. So that is a, is a conscious decision at the highest levels of government, which propagates down, to remove as many barriers to these startups succeeding and actually innovating as possible. And like you said, that can give China a distinct advantage. And we are going to have to see how the other countries in the world respond. So are we going to become more flexible uh, in the United States and in Europe, in other Asian countries? in order to compete. And what does that mean for society? What does, you know, especially when it comes to medical technology and things like that, those regulations are, are put in place for a reason, uh, to safeguard uh, people um, from medical companies experimenting on them and doing unethical things. So 
we will we will it will be a push and pull and we'll have to see how that develops but right now it's very exciting time in china because the government is uh so supportive of startups it is interesting though because i mean if you look at if you look at fintech at least i mean one of the reasons that uh fintech is um doing doing so well especially when it when you look at like peer to peer lending um is because the government is very supportive of it and they've created a regulatory environment where it's actually very easy to know that someone is who they say they are, thus uh, decreasing the, the risk of fraud. Yes, we've already seen some big cases of fraud in China where people have lost a lot of money and we'll probably see many more. But the government has taken, been proactive about uh, trying to reduce the amount of fraud by regulating in the right way. So I think the Chinese government is pretty smart. I mean, they definitely don't want people to get ripped off. They definitely don't want uh, bad things to happen in society in, in society in general. So they are trying their best to try new things, many of them quite risky um, in all different areas, but still keep a handle on it when they get out of control. And I think that's something every government in the world needs to do. All the gov- I mean, all of us, if we're going to have a strong startup ecosystems, being very careful about our regulations, but also being flexible are two important things. And they, they aren't mutually exclusive. You can be very careful and still allow for flexibility while keeping a close eye on it and responding quickly if it gets out of control. You know, nobody wants to be blamed when something goes wrong. <laughs> so, but at the same time, you're going to have to take risks with startups because startups are really trying things that haven't been tried before and you can't really predict how they're going to turn out and if you just shut them down at when they're at the beginning due to regulation due to over regulating them or being too cautious you kill the chance of innovation you, you kill the chance of your startups leading the world but at the same time you can't be too lax because then you could create huge problems in society and, and many people could be hurt yeah i I'm, i see a lot of this when i go outside china i deal with wechat stuff mostly so um for WeChat Pay, for example, uh, the dynamic is very different when you go outside China. Uh, the first question is regulation, uh, safety, um, and sometimes the whole idea is you can see it's just dead in the water. Um, yes. Straight, right? And uh, <laughs> it could be, you know, obviously, uh, if you're 10 cents looking at this, it could be very frustrating. I'm sure Alibaba feels the same and financial. Uh, they have these great opportunities, huge markets out there, and it's just that the opportunity is immediately killed by regulation. It's just not even um, you know, possible to move into that market. Let's face um, it. There are a lot of dinosaurs out there in the banking and financial industry that are yeah. only being kept alive through regulation. If those regulations went away, they would be way outcompeted by these young startups who would be launching mobile banks and, you know, blockchain, uh, banks with uh, blockchain as their foundation. And they could, you know, cut prices and offer services much cheaper, much faster, much better. So I think the, you know, the Western countries really need to think hard about allowing, giving startups more latitude to uh, experiment in the financial sector, in the banking sectors, and not uh, let the big banks, the entrenched players, pressure them to keep the regulations as they are currently. So, Steve, you know, you, you just talked about how you know there's there's all these dinosaurs and and um, you know that at, at, if, if there weren't that many regulations out there, 
that there would be, you know, startups disrupting uh, their businesses left, left and right. Um, but, you know, looking, looking at it from, you know, a corporate perspective, while the regulations are, are helpful in terms of, um, you know, protecting my market position a little bit, um, I still want to make sure that, you know, I'm not, I, I'm doing the best that I can to make sure that that I'm not being disrupted. That I am um, that my company is becoming more innovative and more agile, um, you know, uh, uh, across across the board. But this is a very difficult thing to do. And um, your your recent book, uh, Making Elephants Fly, is 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 about that as well. It's about corporate innovation. It's about um, how do you create uh, an atmosphere where, where um, people are encouraged to, to innovate. So I'm just wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about that and tell us more about your book. So my book, Making Elephants Fly, The Process of Radical Innovation, is really goes deep on how you think about innovation, how you create breakthrough innovation. So what I did was I actually went out to a lot of startups. I've been working with startups for the past five years. I was in startups before that. They were my own startups. But over the past five years, I've worked with hundreds of startups very deeply on their business models, on their go-to-market strategy, on how they raise capital, and on how they innovate in design and in products. And looking at how the startups solve these hard problems. And then what I did in the book is I, I show people exactly what startups do when they are successfully innovating, the processes they go through, the methodologies they use. And I also show how those processes and methodologies could apply to a more traditional business, to a, either a family-owned business or a large corporation, a multinational corporation, and what you would need to do within that context to actually get your teams innovating. We want people to buy your book, so don't, don't tell us everything. But um, can you give us an idea <laughs> of kind of um... – of kind of what yeah. what are some of the some of the bigger things, um, and also and also I'm kind of curious about you know some of the challenges in terms of implementing uh, some of, some of your advice. Okay, so a big question I get a lot uh, from people who work in in companies all over the world is you know how do we get our teams innovating? How do we uh, get them? You know, Pete, we're we're an older company. I try to innovate in this company, and I just can't. I can't make anything happen. So really, for a company to innovate, whether it's a startup or a large corporation, it has to start at the top. The CEO and the upper management have to say, we are willing to allow our employees to go off in other directions, to do experiments, and most importantly, to fail, to fail in the process of innovating. And we are going to understand how that process works and how to gain knowledge and learnings from these different experiments our teams are doing and then try again and again and again because when you're innovating so most corporations like certainty most companies want certainty they want to plan ahead they want to know what's happening if they spend money they want to be sure it will add to their bottom line they want to be sure it will have an impact but when you're innovating you aren't sure about anything and that's the hard part that's the scary part so it's scary for upper management to allocate resources towards it. It's scary for upper management because it will disrupt things that are already flowing smoothly in the company and take away potentially from the focus. It's also scary for the managers and the people at the, on the ground floor who are doing the innovating because if they fail, if it doesn't work out, which happens nine out of 
10 times or more. If it, when it doesn't work out, they're afraid of getting blamed. So they're afraid they'll be passed up for promotions or worse, they'll be fired from the job. So the whole culture of a company needs to change around this. You need to understand what teams are going to do. You need to understand how to uh, structure those teams in a way that is very similar to startups. So I'll give you some pointers now that I recommend. What I recommend is that if you want your team to innovate, don't have a too big a team. So you don't want a team with 20 people or 30 people or 50 people trying to innovate. It becomes really hard. Now, Jeff Bezos, who is the CEO of Amazon, and Amazon is, I would say, the most innovative company, maybe outside of Google in the world. They're head-to-head -head for innovation. Amazon does it amazing products. You know, they've pioneered the whole Alexa and Echo uh, voice control devices, and they're they're leading the way there. Um, they, you know, they did the whole cloud platform with AWS. They reinvented e-commerce. Amazon just keeps going. They are an amazingly innovative company. And Jeff Bezos has a rule, and his rule is: if you want people in your company to innovate, you got to follow the two pizza rule. And the two pizza rule says: if a team, you can't feed your team on just two pizzas, the team is too big. So that. So you can imagine how big, you know, two pizzas isn't that much food, especially if you're me and I can eat a whole pizza. <laughs> pizza crazy. So it could only be me and a couple other people, maybe. But <laughs> seriously, but seriously, you know, you want a team, you know, 10 people or less, ideally, maybe 15 people if they're very light eaters. <laughs> they're all very small. Uh, but uh, the idea is these smaller teams move faster. They innovate more. And the reason they do it is because they communicate better. The hierarchy breaks down. So first of all, when you get a large team with a lot of people, it's, it naturally forms a hierarchy because there's so many people in order to communicate and make decisions, you have to have a boss and then you have to have somebody under them managing them and blah, blah, blah. And the bigger the team gets, the more vertical it gets. But what you want is a more horizontal structure for innovation, where everybody is everybody else's partner. There's more lateral communication. Everybody's sharing ideas with everybody. Each person, they're intimately. So it's not a formal relationship of you telling me what to do. It's me thinking about what needs to be done. And you get that type of culture and that type of uh, environment. And then people really start, people are very experimental. People will come up with ideas. Most people just suppress them when they're on the job. They, they, they turn off the innovation spigot. The uh, book about Amazon talked about that concept of the, the two pizza teams. It was really, really, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's amazing. That's, that's and then, really yeah. Yeah. And Google, Google is amazing at keeping its teams innovative too. They actually found that the number one thing that makes people, uh, that makes teams more productive, more innovative, uh, you know, moves faster. The number one thing was not how many smart people you have on the team, which is surprising because Google used to think, oh, if we put the best people on these teams, they will outperform all the other teams. Well, that isn't true. The teams with the best people didn't necessarily outperform everybody. The teams that outperformed everybody, the communication within the team was key. People would communicate with each other within the team really well. And they also had one factor that they really spiked on, and that was trust. 
they not only communicated with each other, but they trusted their coworkers. They knew their coworkers wouldn't stab them in the back. They felt like they could say, speak openly, say anything to their coworkers. And they knew if they asked their coworkers to do something, the coworkers would follow through on it and get it done. Teams with, with that type of communication, they way outperformed everybody else, regardless of who was on the team. So that, that is a takeaway uh, for any size company, whether you're a, a young startup that wants to innovate or whether you're a, a large multinational corporation, you need to create that sort of dynamic if, you're re if your teams are really going to push the boundaries. Steve, yeah, it's, I see echoes of that, you know, of what you're describing there also in China. Um, it's actually very similar for WeChat team. Um, their, their management is very horizon horizontal. Um, and um, also they have, a, it's well known that the, the, the their, their leader, Alan Jung, is, is uh, he actually made a talk about it, about how he's like, he doesn't see, um, he sees large teams as, uh, as as a very sort of bad direction for for, for WeChat. Even though they, they grow, their, their team is well over a thousand people now, um, he much prefers to work with small teams. And he was, uh, you know, that, that's how they divide uh, the units there into sort of like smaller groups that have very high um, and, and very high level of uh, communication and, and work together in exactly the way you described. He he is, uh, you know, Alan Jung, he is a brilliant manager. He really understands design and he really understands how to get people uh, to think beyond what they're what they would normally do in their position in a, in a company. I have a huge for him and what he did. He's also very disciplined. Like he instills in his team, you know, that that concept that the user, the customer always comes first in anything they add to WeChat. They don't just add stuff to WeChat. They think really carefully. What will what impact will this have on the customer? What for the user? How will this change their experience of our product? And will it change it in a way that makes our product less valuable to them? And even if that feature or whatever is something that you know the, the, the company as a whole would make more money on or would get people to stay in WeChat longer, if he feels like that would in any way degrade the overall experience, then he, he just won't allow it. They won't do it, no matter how much money is at stake. That is very unusual for a Chinese company. Let's face it. Most Chinese companies are like, well, how can we make more money? Put in more ads. Do this. Do that. Do that. You know, and he's saying the opposite of, of that. Yeah, and it's and it's really interesting. I mean, um, Matt just uh, recently did uh, an interview with, with Tech in Asia, and, and one of the the more interesting uh, um, things that things that Matt said about WeChat is that you know it's basic. It's it's gone in, in terms of in terms of um, user base. It's gone about as far as it can. I mean, like it's you know it's just it's it's huge. Pretty much everyone in China is is already using it, and so and so now like the question is you know how can they continue to innovate? How can they continue to make sure that WeChat stays sticky or perhaps even gets um, stickier. And I think, Steve, what you're saying about, um, you know, their, their relentless focus on, on the customer experience, I think, is, is, is absolutely spot on. I mean, Matt and I, we've talked about this before, but you look at, you know, every single aspect of WeChat. I mean, so there are some UI problems, I think. There are some UX problems. But at the end of the day, they're not big enough to make it actually uh, less sticky. In fact, you know, in the introduction of the mini apps or, or mini programs um, is, is really only going to, you know, drive them forward in, into the future. 
and, and get you know the people who uh, you know younger generations who aren't on WeChat. Um, in a lot of ways, they're going to grow up in a in a world where you know they're going to they're going to look back and they're going to say, well, I thought WeChat always existed. I thought everyone always used WeChat. It's true. So WeChat is like eating up people's lives. It's actually eating up the internet. It's like sucking the entire internet into WeChat, which is an amazing thing with these mini programs that they're launching. So you'll be you won't have to go to other apps. You won't have to go to websites. WeChat wants you to do all of that inside of WeChat. So all your interaction. I predict that someday there will be a WeChat phone. So a phone with one app on it, WeChat. <laughs> you don't need any other apps because we, you could do everything in WeChat and Tencent will manufacture this phone and, and people will be fine with it because right now they're spending so much time in WeChat and they're only going to be smart. One interesting thing that Alan Jang said uh, that resonated with me is he doesn't want, he's very careful not to have people spending too much time doing any one thing like too much time just chatting or just on moments. And the reason uh, he, he, he said this is because he doesn't want WeChat to actually negatively impact their life. He doesn't want them spending a disproportionate amount of time doing something in WeChat just because they could make somebody do that. He wants WeChat to actually improve your life, make the quality of your life better. So the direction that I see them taking WeChat is they're going to allow people to do more and more other things besides chat inside the WeChat framework. And that's going to be very interesting. You know, they're already architecting it with the mini programs. There's going to be bots and AI and all these things layered into WeChat. And it'll be very interesting to see how those play out over time. I totally agree. You know, I often compare the, uh, the Tencent and the WeChat focus on the consumer with Amazon. Um, you know, there's a, there's a very, very clear comparison there in the way they, they're so user focused. They're so focused, religious about the user experience and the customer. Steve, so the book, my understanding, you wrote it, well, obviously you wrote it in English, um, but it's been published in Chinese first. My experience writing the book was really unusual. So most books get published in the US and they don't even get to China until much later. You know, a lot of times after they're released in the U.S. and maybe already a bestseller. But because I was so engaged in China, doing business, expanding founder space, and I had so many relationships there that as soon as I figured the manuscript, as soon as I finished the manuscript, I just reached out to my my friends on WeChat and said, hey, I've completed this book. Do you want to introduce me to some Chinese publishers? And I got introduced to the six top publishers in China, and they all jumped on the book. And it uh, instantly got sold. And as you know, Chinese publishers move fast. So right. they just ran with it. Even with the translation, which takes time, they are coming out six months ahead of my U.S. publisher. So my U.S. publisher is a major publisher. It's one of the top five. It's Hachette. Um, but all the major U.S. publishers, they take about a year from the time you finish something to get it out into the market. Oh, so really? they are coming out. Yes, it's a full year. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I want to release this book next month. Come on, like, let's just get it out there, print it. And they're like, it's in English. Come on, the Chinese are ahead of you. <laughs> and that, um, I mean, that, for me, that, summarized, that summarized quite nicely of uh, how things work differently in China. 
Yeah, in China, it's all about like, let's get this to market as fast as possible. So my publisher, Zhang Xin in China, has been incredible. They've been so proactive, so uh, they've done so much uh, to promote the book and to communicate with me, you know, on the cover design, every single thing. They've really uh, bent over backwards. Not saying my U.S. publisher hasn't, but it's just been a much better experience than, than I ever imagined possible. So, so I'm very happy that it came out in China. And the irony is, is that uh, because it came out in China, as I was kind of finalizing the book to get it out there, I put a lot of stuff in it just for the Chinese market. That when my U.S. publisher read it later, they were like, no, no, you can't have this. You can't have this. They started pulling out all the specific things to China. So I've noticed a lot of the reviewers in China are saying, wow, you know, making elephants fly is like really written for Chinese entrepreneurs. And in a way, they're right. <laughs> it, it really was. I had to rewrite it for the U.S. entrepreneur. Someone will have to retranslate it back into English to get the uh, yes! <laughs> the Chinese English version, right? Yeah, that, that would be very funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure yes. there's a lot of uh, frustrated authors out there in the world who uh, must be looking at the Chinese market and perhaps... Um, you know, this there could be more people doing this, doing it this way in the future, right? Well, China is such a big market, so huge right now, especially in our area with startups and technology. That it's a great market to launch a book in. I mean, it's fantastic. At the same time, it's still very competitive. You know, all over the world to get a major publisher, it's not easy. It's like I I had to slave over that book <laughs> to get it. A bit, but I'm a big believer that you have to. Uh, you have to do something of very high quality. If it's if it's not high enough quality, you will not do it at all. So instead of just writing it quickly, I, I put a lot of time into it. And I think um, in any market, it's going to have to do that. Whether it's a book, whether it's an app, whether it's any other product out there that you're going to want consumers to respond to, you're just going to have to go all the way, make it the best possible. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of China Tech Talk. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you shared it on social media. And even better, if you could leave us um, an iTunes uh, review. Uh, we understand it, it, it's actually not as easy as we had we had thought to uh, to leave that review, but we will have a, uh, a short tutorial on how to do that in, in the show notes. And so if you could just take, you know, five minutes to give us that review, we would really, really appreciate it. But before we go, I just want to say to uh, to Steve, once again, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time out to, uh, to talk a little bit um, about uh, about yourself and uh, what, what you see happening here in China. Thank you for having me. It's been great. 